Hello, listener. Welcome to the theater, the podcast of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Today's episode centers around drug treatments for breast cancer prevention, and we've produced this panel discussion in collaboration with Health Innovation Manchester. As our panel today will discuss, despite a general lack of awareness that these treatments exist, risk-reducing medical therapies for people at risk of developing breast cancer have been shown to be safe and effective, providing protection long after their suggested course of treatment. So we have a really diverse panel today. We've got a surgeon, a GP, a medical oncologist, and a consultant in medical genetics. And the aim of this podcast is to give surgeons and other healthcare professionals an overview of the treatments available, how they work, and which groups of patients would most benefit from them. Some of our listeners may recall that last year we also did a podcast for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I would say that while that podcast was a really special discussion, and I would definitely recommend checking it out if you haven't already, this conversation is very distinct from that, so it's not required that you go back and listen to the other episode. That said, I hope you find this episode really informative. And as always, if you have any feedback for us, or if you would like to get in touch about proposing an episode for the podcast yourself, you can reach us at podcasts at rcseng.ac.uk. Enjoy the episode, everyone. Most family history clinics are overseen by a consultant surgeon. And what is not realized a lot is that most of the additional breast screening that goes on based on family history isn't done through the National Screening Programme. It is actually done in, in breast units and in family history clinics. Thinking as a surgeon, we are flooded and overwhelmed by referrals from general practice. We are seeing huge numbers of women with nothing wrong with them in our diagnostic clinics and therefore the patients who have cancer are waiting longer. So what we are currently doing for breast cancer patients is not working. Because tamoxifen for prevention has been so little known, almost no GP that I've met has even heard of it as a potential treatment. So there's a big gap in awareness um, in primary care. This is a drug, tamoxifen, for example, that, that we prescribe all the time in oncology. And we have no worries about it at all. Yes, it has side effects, but it is extremely safe drug. Hello, everybody. I'm Rosie Stanton. I'm a breast cancer surgeon and a breast cancer patient and a moderate risk breast cancer gene carrier. Um, I'm here today with a collection of wonderful, interested clinicians to talk about using medical treatment to prevent breast cancer in patients we know are more likely to get it. Gareth, would you like to introduce yourself? So I'm Gareth Evans. I'm a a consultant in medical genetics, but also professor of medical genetics and cancer epidemiology at University of Manchester. And I've been involved in risk and prevention clinics for breast cancer since 1990. And with my colleague, Tony Hal, we uh, entered the first patients into the IBIS-1 prevention trial on tamoxifen in about 1992, I believe. And we were also heavily involved in the IBIS-2 trial, which was the anastrozole trial in women not yet affected by breast cancer, although there were some with DCIS. 
So I've been heavily involved in the NICE guidelines for familial breast cancer, starting as chairman, then becoming clinical lead and then topic expert. So I seem to have got demoted along the way. Sasha, who are you? So I'm Dr. Sasha Howell. I'm a senior lecturer and honorary consultant in breast medical oncology in Manchester. And I, I currently run breast cancer prevention clinics here in Manchester uh, and really specialising in, in uh, preventive medications such as tamoxifen and anastrozole. Uh, and like Gareth, was also a topic expert on the, uh, the recent NICE guidance update in 2017. And Nicola? Hi, I'm Nicola Weaver. I'm the Macmillan GP clinical cancer lead in Southwark, which is in southeast London. And I became involved with um, the Manchester crowd last year when the, uh, there was an NHS project to try and increase awareness and uptake of uh, the drugs which have been shown to work for uh, primary prevention of breast cancer. So, Sasha, I'm really interested in the idea of preventing breast cancer. I, you know, patients with a family history of breast cancer are really scared about getting breast cancer. And mothers are really scared about giving that predilection to their children. So tell me a bit about how we can prevent breast cancer in people who haven't yet got it. Well, there are there are several ways that we can do that, and I, and I know that you know today's podcast is about um, medication that can do that, but we, we mustn't forget that there are also lifestyle measures as well. And so, just very briefly, we can we can uh, reduce weight. So, particularly gaining weight towards the end of the the premenopausal period and into into the postmenopausal period is uh, is a strong risk factor for breast cancer. So, we really want to reduce weight in overweight women. We can also limit alcohol in intake uh, and also increase exercise. And those have all been shown to be sort of preventative um, measures that we can, uh, we can advise women to undertake. But what the focus is today is, is really on risk-reducing medication. Uh, and as Gareth said earlier, th th there are three, tamoxifen, anastrozole and raloxifene, uh, that have been approved for use in the UK. And as a very, very brief bit of background, the certainly tamoxifen and anastrozole um, were shown, first of all, to be effective because when women were being treated for breast cancer, it was noted that there were fewer breast cancers occurring in the other breast. But that was the very first observation. That then led on to primary prevention trials which showed that these drugs can reduce the risk of developing breast cancer in women who haven't had a, a diagnosis themselves by between around about 40 to 50%. So halving the risk of breast cancer by taking one of these drugs for about five years. And that is a massive reduction, isn't it? It is, absolutely. It's, a, it's an incredibly worthwhile reduction in, in breast cancer risk. Uh, you know, we, I was going to ask how the tablets work, and I think we should answer that. But, um, Gareth, what what groups of people would benefit from these tablets? You know, we're, we're talking about patients who haven't had cancer. And is it men? Is it women? Is it children? Who is it? So the, the, the NICE looked at two categories of risk. And, and it's probably easiest to just talk about lifetime risk. So someone at moderate risk where, you know, uh, has a lifetime risk between 17% or around one in six chance, up to about 29%. Uh, 
and someone at high risk has a 30% or higher lifetime risk. And uh, women at high risk, according to NICE, should be offered these medications from around probably the age of 30. It might be possible to, to, to consider it younger than that, but we're not definitely talking about children. And uh, women at moderate risk can be considered for those treatments. And in particular, NICE found that anastrozole was cost-saving to the health service. In other words, not just cost-effective, but it saved the health service money if you gave anastrozole to women at high risk because you halve the number of breast cancers and breast cancer is expensive to treat. And anastrozole is actually a very cheap medication costing only pence every day. The only issue would be that those that identify themselves as male who are so transgender males mm -hmm. would still retain female risk of uh, because they have had ovaries they yeah. would have an intermediate risk of breast cancer so in particular someone identifying as a transgender male who was born female or had female characteristics at birth would still retain most of the female risk of being a BRCA1 or BRCA2 carrier. So that would be the main uh, additional category, whereas those that were born male would never be at sufficient risk to justify any of these medications. In terms of the different types, probably should be Sasha that answers this, but there are two main types of drug. One is called a CIRM, which basically blocks the estrogen receptors, so reduces the impact of estrogen uh, on the receptors on the breast. And the other is an aromatase inhibitor of which anastrozole is one, the only one that's currently approved by NICE in the UK. And that is that blocks the production of estrogen after the menopause by blocking an enzyme called aromatase. So they both work by reducing the impact of estrogen on the breast, but aromatase, in other words, anastrozole, can only work after the menopause because it can't block estrogen from the ovaries. And the most common sort of serum that we would hear used is tamoxifen, I think, we in this country. Tamoxifen. Riloxifene is, is another, uh, but it is not quite as good uh, as blocking the receptor on the breast. It actually has less side effects, but is not quite as good at reducing breast cancer risk. And what side effects do we see in patients taking these tablets for risk reduction? So, so the, 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 the common side effects of, of both tamoxifen and anastrozole um, are menopausal symptoms. Um, so the, both drugs can cause hot flushes, they can cause some night sweats, and they can cause a bit of vaginal dryness uh, as well. Tamoxifen can actually cause some vaginal discharge. Um, it's worthwhile saying though that about half of women don't have any side effects from these drugs when they're used in prevention. Um, and it's certainly our opinion in Manchester that we should be offering these drugs and really recommending women just give them a go. 
because all of the side effects are reversible. And if the drug is well tolerated, then of course one has lost nothing. Uh, and if the drug isn't well tolerated, there are other medications, other approaches that we can use to help with the side effects. Or of course, women can stop the drug and then those side effects will go away again. And uh, yeah, and, and, and another thing is, is that sometimes the side effects at the start, so people who take these medications may get uh, quite a lot of hot flushes to start with, but they often ameliorate, they get better after about three or four months. So most women that, most people that stop the medications uh, actually stop the medications in the first three to six months. And in the trials, nearly everyone who gets past six months actually completes the course of the full five years of treatment. So if, you, if, if you're getting side effects at the start, which you think, uh, you know, perhaps a little bit life spoiling, it's worth giving it a little bit more time to see if they ameliorate and that they become tolerable. I have to say, actually, I've dealt with many, many people taking taking tamoxifen for breast cancer. But it's a, one of the things about it is that when women are on tamoxifen because they've got or just had breast cancer, they're getting most of their care still from the oncologists. And because tamoxifen for prevention has been so little known, almost no GP that I've met has even heard of it as a potential treatment. So there's a big gap in um, awareness um, in primary care. Absolutely. I would like to uh, say that I, actually I did have breast cancer myself six years ago and I didn't need chemotherapy or radiotherapy. I just had surgery and I've taken tamoxifen for six years and I actually feel better on tamoxifen than I did before because I used to have horrible breast pain every month and it went away completely. Um, I think I didn't get any dryness at all. Uh, so when it came around to five years and I don't have the genetic profile that puts me at increased risk according to the tests that have been done. Um, I've elected to stay on it for another couple of years. I only started to get um, symptoms when I finally went into the menopause very late. <laughs> um, and my feeling is that, I mean, this is, it, it seems to, you know, my sister-in-law had, um, has taken treatment. Um, but because she had so many treatments all at once um, and, you know, a miserable time of the, the um, post-breast cancer sort of treatment that was needed that everything's mixed up together and tamoxifen it's quite it must be quite difficult to extract from all that what's causing what um, amid everything that happens to you when you've uh, been unlucky enough to need the whole lot thrown at you. So do I have to be a gene carrier to be eligible for these tablets? Not at all no you just need to have a risk assessment which shows that your risks are sufficient and so you know, the nice definition is a lifetime risk of 17 to 29% for, for moderate risk, where you can be considered for treatment, and a risk of 30% or higher uh, as the high risk category. And we often also talk about a 10 year category, and the nice 10 year risk category is 8%. So we can work these risks out on risk algorithms. Risk models like Tyracusic and CanRisk can give you printout, which you can actually give to people who want to know what their risks are. And, um, and that gives their risk over their remaining lifetime. And you also get a risk for, for a 10-year period from, from the age that you are. So that you can work out 
in the next 10, 20 years, how much likelihood is there that I'm actually going to get a breast cancer prevented? And we know that both drugs work at least up until 20 years from taking them for five years. So they work well beyond the five years you take them. And I think a lot of people don't realize that or, or haven't clocked that, that you get the protection long after you stop taking the treatment. So for a patient with a family history, they can have an elevated risk of getting breast cancer just from their family history. And separately, they can have a gene test that may identify a gene we know about that causes breast cancer. But they can still keep that elevated risk of breast cancer just from their family, even if those gene tests are negative. Is that right? Correct, yes. So, and therefore, if they have an elevated risk, they may need be eligible for taking these tablets. Absolutely. And the great majority of women who have taken tamoxifen or anastrozole are women without a known gene fault. I think that the issues that um, arise um, most foremost in my mind are, are around the practicalities of this happening and the the pathway problems that exist within the health service to practically achieve uh, being prescribed this tablet, even if you make it to the right place to have the assessments. And Sasha and Gareth, how have you overcome these problems in Manchester? So uh, COVID is actually something that, you know, it, it's not helped many things, but it, it has helped this because we shifted all of our uh, review appointments to, to telephone and then have constructed some letters to go to GPs which give advice on this, how to manage some of the you know the more uh, common side effects and have asked the GPs because of the situation with telephone consultations whether they'd be happy to initiate the prescription in primary care um, and I think all bar one GP in the Greater Manchester area that I've come across have been happy to do that and then the patients have just rung up the, the surgery and, and the, you know, the uh, prescription has been issued. So that's one aspect of this that, that Nicola was just talking about that has actually, in, in many respects, already been resolved in, in Manchester. And, and I don't see any reason why it couldn't be more widely in the country. What I think we need to do is to support GPs. Obviously, the, this is a drug, tamoxifen, for example, that, that we prescribe all the time in oncology. Uh, and we have no worries about it at all. Yes, it has side effects, but it is extremely safe drug. So we just need to support and reassure GPs with that. And I think with some basic, you know, sort of template letters, for example, that are approved nationally, that would solve this situation. And Gareth, the family history clinics you speak about, are they supported generally by geneticists? I mean, if we want to overcome these problems, which college needs to have these letters and pour them out into general practice? Well, I guess the, the most family history clinics are overseen by a consultant surgeon. And they're often nurse-led or often led by a clinical fellow or by a junior surgeon. Uh, so um, in, in that sense, the great majority are probably within the auspices of the Royal College of Surgeons. Uh, and, and 
And what is not realized a lot is that most of the additional breast screening that goes on based on family history isn't done through the National Screening Programme. It is actually done in, in breast units and in family history clinics. And, and, you know, the fact that a lot of those have been pulled by what was the PCTs, the CCGs, because they thought that the provision was being done by the screening programme was a huge error and and that you know there are issues with that so there will be parts of the country where the only way to get a risk assessment will be through genetics but the geneticist will know that but yeah i would i would say the royal college of surgeons was probably the 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 college that was most uh, where most of the family history clinics will will effectively be run through because of the the, the consultant surgeons taking oversight. And Gareth, are there plans afoot then to pick up these people at an earlier stage in their lives, either as incorporating it into screening or through general practice and epidemiology care? Because the genetics is gambling ahead of what we're actually doing. As you say, we're now eligible to test for moderate risk, but we're still waiting for patients to get cancer before we do it. And also the, the testing requirements are, are very limited. You know, you have to have quite an extent, you know, very narrow borders. The testing's getting cheaper and cheaper. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it will happen. I think that, that it, it's still going to take a bit of time before it does happen. Um, there are extensive discussions that involve the National Screening Committee, among others, about uh, bringing screening to a younger age and offering assessment at a younger age. Family history is an incredibly bl a blunt instrument. We know there are many more women out there that are moderate risk without a family history of breast cancer, and that by being able to introduce a risk assessment and and Sasha, I think, would want to speak to this because he's set up a, a study that has been funded to do this in, in younger women, that if we were able to do a measure of mammographic density um, to, to look at not just the high and moderate risk genes like BRCA1 and 2 and CHET2 and ATM, but also a polygenic risk score. And we now know that most of the inherited component of breast cancer is not moderate and high risk genes, but actually common genetic variants, which taken together can put your risk way up or way down. And uh, putting all of those together, polygenic risk scores are incredibly cheap to do as well. Actually, you can assess, and we think about 20% of the female population will be at least at moderate risk if we assess them at in their mid to late 30s and potentially would benefit from early screening as well as potentially being uh, having a discussion around tamoxifen. So I don't know if you want to add to that, Sash. Well, I think only to say that, you know, your, your point there about the fact that actually the majority of women who develop breast cancer by far don't have a, a mutation in any of the moderate to high risk genes. Um, only about a third of women who develop breast cancer have a family history. But at the moment, we're in this situation where we can only really be offering risk review to women in family history clinics. You know, what Gareth is talking about is the way that we think things are going to progress over the next 10 years. 
to try and incorporate a more holistic assessment of, of um, breast cancer risk. But I think for the purposes of, of, of trying to broaden the applicability, if you like, and then the availability of drugs like tamoxifen and anastrozole, we really, I think, need family history clinics, perhaps genetics clinics, to slightly relax the referral criteria, um, you know, to sort of unlock the door so that if, if women do have a, um, and, and actually Nicola touched on this, you know, if, if their mum or their sister was diagnosed at 55 or 60, well, actually, if they've had a late first pregnancy themselves, then that would put their risk you know, up into that moderate risk category, and they would be eligible for tamoxifen. So is the infrastructure there in the country at the moment? Well, I'm not sure it is, but that's what we should be working on. You know, we should be trying to empower women to say, well, look, I've got a, you know, a, a family history that doesn't quite hit the mark, but I know that because I have my first child at 35, um, you know, I'm actually you know, my risk is in that right category. So, so speaking as a surgeon, up and down the country, we are flooded and overwhelmed by referrals from general practice for diagnostic breast clinics. Yeah. And our pickup rate has gone from one in seven or eight when I started training to probably one in 20 referred now have breast cancer. So we are seeing huge numbers of women with nothing wrong with them in our diagnostic clinics and therefore the patients who have cancer are waiting longer. So what we are currently doing for breast cancer patients is not working. We really do need, I think, to push this system forward because we have the technology now to identify the women out there before they get cancer who are at risk of getting breast cancer cheaply and easily and we have medication that will reduce that risk and we have lifestyle guidance that will reduce that risk. So I think the time has come to push this forward hugely because what we are now doing is not working. Whether we incorporate this into the screening program or it's a separate midlife crisis program, we need to have it out there because the surgeons can't do what we're doing well any longer. Oh, I completely agree. And I think GPs would be perfectly happy to prescribe this. My one cry is that we need a telephone line to somebody to ask advice from and to know who that person would be um, in the situation where, you know, you're not familiar with it, that you get a lot of young GPs. We're also getting a lot of um, general practice consultations conducted by physicians assistants now and by um, people who don't have a full GP training because of the workforce crisis. So we're but starting at time, we need support to be there as well as um, just the process of sending a letter saying, start this. But Nicola, that the, you need the support, but the answer is also that when we prescribe this for risk reduction, if it's not tolerated, you stop it and you're no worse off. So I think that Nicola's right and that, you know, if we're going to get women over that hump of side effects, as it were, that Gareth was talking about, you know, maybe it's three to six months and then things will start to settle down. Well, actually, we need to be, you know, empowering GPs who may only see, a, you know, a handful of patients in their entire career. 
um, you know, that they're prescribing tamoxifen or an astrazole for for this indication, then I think you know let's do it. You know let's get the the, the paperwork, let's get the telephone line sorted out. It may be as simple as just identifying a specific advice and guidance um, uh, e electronic prescribing route by which you can send questions. It it doesn't need to be anything very big. It just there just needs to be a better pathway than we've got at the moment. Some patients are eligible for risk reducing surgery. You know, is that not the answer to everything? You know, what, what, why doesn't everyone just get offered risk reducing surgery? It's pretty drastic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's also pretty expensive to do bilateral mastectomies with reconstruction and yeah. many women would not even think about it as an option and yeah. uh, the evidence is that the the uptake women at 30 to 40 percent is actually less than the uptake of of tamoxifen and and we do talk about risk reducing mastectomy to all women over 30 percent risk so i you know, it is an option for women at that level of risk, but actually more women would actually take risk-reducing medication. And and that's the answer I was driving at. And Sasha, I think you told me before on the phone that actually a lot of high-risk women do not want surgery. So for so, them, this is an untapped resource. Yeah, so even those women who who have got a you know a high risk gene mutation, and, and Gareth has shown this very nicely. You know, BRCA1 or BRCA2, probably about 50% of those women, despite an approximately 80% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, decide they don't want to undergo risk reducing surgery. And then for those women that don't have a high risk gene mutation, they may still have an over 30% lifetime risk and only around about five to ten percent will accept the offer of risk reducing surgery so there's a huge you know array of women out there who don't want to go un undergo the surgery and, and of course that's because it is such a major undertaking it's very effective but it is a major undertaking and those women are completely you know eligible for for risk reducing medication thank you everyone thank you for your time um, it's been really helpful. Thank you for listening. Health Innovation Manchester has produced a suite of resources on primary breast cancer education in collaboration with ourselves at the Royal College of Surgeons as well as with a number of other health bodies around the country to increase awareness of breast cancer prevention for both patients and clinicians. And you can visit their website for more information. Don't forget to subscribe to the theater wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a review or a comment if you are so inclined. We would love to hear your feedback. For more information and updates from the college, please visit our website or follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.